with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. If you're not familiar with the book of Jonah, if you look in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents, and uh, you can find it listed there in the page. It's one of the, he's one of the minor prophets. Uh, comes after Obadiah and just before Micah. The book of Jonah, we're taking a, a brief break from our study through the Gospel of Matthew to look at, for probably about four weeks, at Jonah. Let's pray together. Father, we bow today as a people who once knew no mercy, but as a people who now have received mercy from you. God, I pray that you would just fill us with gratefulness to you, O Lord, for your great mercy through this study. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Jonah? A big fish, a whale, right? You didn't know whether to say a whale or a big fish, right? One of the two, that's typically what comes to mind. All the kids, you've been through Sunday school, right? You, you drew or colored a picture of, of Jonah and a great big fish, right? I, I, was, I was surprised, and I, I know some of you for sure saw this story because several of you, when you found out we were going through Jonah, you emailed me this. But if you're not aware, in June, there was a, a professional uh, or a veteran lobster diver in Cape Cod named Michael Packard. And he is dove for lobsters all his life, and he was diving for lobsters. And as he was doing so back in June, he felt uh, uh, something hit him from behind. He said it, it felt like he almost got hit by a car, and then everything went black. And his first thought was, I've been attacked by a shark. Then he realized there was no teeth, and he didn't know what was going on. And, he, and his thought suddenly was, I have been swallowed. I am inside of a whale. And he started doing, I guess, what we would all do. We were laughing at this at the house uh, last night. I was talking to the kids about this story. And we were just laughing at, what do you do in that moment? And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm elbowing, right? And so he's hitting and scrambling and trying to get out of this thing. And the whale comes to the surface, and he's obviously agitated it, as should happen. And the whale starts thrashing and slinging, and eventually throws Michael Packard out of his mouth onto the surface. Not the, not the beach, but the surface of the ocean. His buddy has a witness to this, and he's watching. There's another fisherman down the way that saw it too, and they, they both witnessed to the fact that they are there, and his buddy had been looking for the bubbles, and the bubbles had disappeared, and he said, well, that's kind of odd. And then all of a sudden he sees the thrashing on the water and doesn't know what it is, and then his, his buddy is thrown from the well onto the surface. And so they talk about that. You can look it up online. It's a pretty fascinating story and, and certainly one that I'm sure his family will tell for years and years to come. Quite remarkable. For Michael Packard, well, the account of Jonah is quite remarkable in itself. But what I want us to see as we study through and make our way through Jonah is that this book is less about a great fish and more about God's great mercy. And so we're going to see that as we study through Jonah. We're going to see that it is a book that declares and shows and demonstrates God's mercy to his people. 
The book of Jonah is, is one of, as I said, is one of the 12 minor prophets. It's written in the 8th century. Uh, Jonah was the son of someone named Amittai, we found out in the first verse. And uh, we learn more about him in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 to 27. That's where we, we learn of Jonah and his, his past, you might say, success as a prophet. As a prophet, he prophesied under the reign of King Jeroboam II. It was sometime, as I said, in the 8th century B.C., and this was a time when the Assyrian Empire was ruling. He was from a small town in Galilee called Gath-Hefer. We find that out in 2 Kings. Gath-Hefer would be a small town that would be near where Jesus spent a lot of his ministry. We talked about that last week, that Jesus carried out his ministry in the area of Galilee out of Capernaum. And so this was an area that Jesus would later come to and carry out ministry. I want to read this morning Jonah chapter 1 and look at some things that God has for us from Jonah chapter 1. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet or it may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this, and I, I want you to see several kind of key points that we need to take note of in this passage, and then we're going to finish with three demonstrations of God's unexpected mercy that we see in this passage. So the first thing I want you to see is that in verses 1 and 2, we, it's, it's really a typical beginning to a, a prophetical book. It's, it's a typical beginning in that it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a phrase that we see all throughout the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to, and you can kind of fill in the blank, came to Moses, or, or came to Obadiah, or came to Jeremiah, or Isaiah. It's a pretty typical phrase. We see it over a hundred times in the Old Testament where God sends his word to a prophet to proclaim his message to a people. So it's a pretty typical beginning. And, and this word is to be given to Nineveh, a, a prominent Assyrian City. It was a Gentile city, yet God was concerned about this city. And so again, we're reminded of the mission of God, the Missio Dei, that, that He desires that the nations rejoice and are glad in Him, declaring that He is the Lord of our salvation. But we see here that, that Nineveh, their evil had come up to the Lord. It says their evil has come up before me. A reminder that God sees all. God is aware of all things. He is aware of the evil done both by his people and by those who are not his people. He is sovereign over all. Now, if you want to flip over later on, maybe this afternoon, if you'll flip a couple books over and you read Nahum, Nahum comes and he prophesies against Nineveh as well. And when he prophesies against Nineveh, it is a very hard word. And Nineveh, soon after Nahum's prophecy, would be destroyed in 612 B.C. So we see here in Jonah, we see a, a word of prophecy to Nineveh calling them to account for their evil, calling them to repentance out of God's mercy. Later, Nahum would pronounce judgment upon them and the city would fall just a few years afterwards. A typical beginning to a prophetical book. But in verse 3, we have a plot twist. We have this shocking twist in the story. With the, the word but, but is a significant word throughout Scripture, and we enjoy seeing it in passages such as Ephesians 3, uh, 2, 4. But here, it's a twist where we see that God has called Jonah. Then in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee. This man of God, this prophet of God, is called to speak a word to the Ninevites, but it says he rose to flee. Now, this is a plot twist because we understand in Scripture that obedience is important. It's important. I just want to remind you for a moment of the importance of obedience in Scripture. We can't avoid, we shouldn't be scared of talking about the importance of us obeying God. I think sometimes we, we run from that. We don't want to talk too much about that. As we may fear we fall into legalism and this religiosity. But the, the, the bottom line is we are called to obey our Lord, right? He is our master. He's our savior. He's our God. And we're called to obey him. Jonah knew this. Jonah was aware of it. If he, or, um, sorry, Deuteronomy 4, 1 to 2, when Moses starts writing this, this final book, he looks out and he says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it. Why? 
that you may keep the commandments of the Lord that I command you today. Or we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has, has disobeyed and Samuel comes to King Saul to address him in his disobedience. And he says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. We read in Psalm 119, 1-4. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Jonah surely knew these passages. He knew the word of the Lord. He knew the instruction of the Lord in the Old Testament. There's many, many more passages in the Old Testament that that teach the same thing, and it continues on into the New Testament. In passages such as Matthew 7, 24 to 27, when when Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he looks at the people, and he talks about the the wisdom of listening to his words. That that the one who listens to his words is is as the one who builds his house on a solid rock, but the one who does not listen is one who builds as though on sand. Or we see in John 14, 15, where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. We read in James 1, 22 to 25 that we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, but we are to obey the word, be a hearer and not just, I mean, be a doer, not just a hearer. In 1 Peter 1 to 2, it's a fascinating introduction to Peter's letter where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved, why? For the obedience to Christ. In 1 John 2, 3 to 6, we read, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, know God, know Christ, if we keep His commandments. John goes on to write, he says, Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Obedience is a vital part of the walk of faith and following Christ. We are to obey our God, and Jonah surely knew the importance of obedience. But yet Jonah is the only prophet we have on record who disobeyed the command to speak on God's behalf. He utterly defied it. Other prophets had excuses or or uncertainties or hesitancies. Jonah flat out disobeyed. The command was what? Arise, go to Nineveh. What was the response? But Jonah rose to flee. He rose to flee. He rose, right? He may even look like he was obeying. God says, rise and go. Jonah says, okay, I'm going to rise. Hey, look, guys, I'm rising. And he rises and flees. It may have looked nice. There may have been a little bit of obedience. But guess what? Partial obedience is disobedience. He did not obey the Lord. He fled. He, the prophet of God, defied the Lord. How ironic is this? That Jonah, the one who is called to go and prophesy against the Ninevites for their sins and their disobedience, 
he instead rebels himself and sins against God and flees to Tarshish. That's the equivalent of God saying, Todd, I want you to go and to deliver my message to Brazil. And me going, okay, I'm going to sail to Alaska. It's the same thing. He flees the other way. He, he had been a successful prophet. This is interesting to me, too. If you, you read 2 Kings 14, 23 to 27, he prophesies to the people of God, and God fulfills that word. He had obeyed. He had spoken a true word, an accurate word of the Lord. But yet here he, he disobeys. He had obeyed God in the past, but now he doesn't. He had answered the call, but now he doesn't. I, I, found, I found this instructive. Sinclair Ferguson noted concerning this. He said, no past privilege, no past obedience, nor fruitfulness in service can ever substitute for present obedience to the word of God. Great blessings only bring present fruitfulness when they are met with continuing obedience. That's an insightful word. Jonah can't sit back and rest on his laurels and go, hey, I, I, I obeyed in the past. I was a good prophet then. Now I'm just going to flee. No, he's disobeying the Lord. He is in sin. But brothers and sisters, we would do well to look in the mirror before we just come out and get really hard on Jonah. Because what this tells us, what it teaches us, is that none of us are immune to disobeying God. There is no one in this room, there is no one watching online who has come to a point in their walk with Christ where they have come to such a place that they don't have the risk or the temptation to disobey. All of us can find ourselves in that place. And I would say that when we find ourselves in that place, the problem is not a lack of opportunity to know God's Word. It's not a, a lack of understanding. It's not a problem with God having not shown himself to be trustworthy for us to follow him. Let me give you three, three ways really quick of why we disobey. Why, why do we disobey? Let me give you three reasons. One, disobedience is rooted in selfish desires. It's rooted in our own selfish desires when we want what we want and we're going to get what we want. And if God calls us to something contrary to what I want, I'm not going to do it. It's rooted in our selfish desires. Second, disobedience is a declaration that I know better than God. God has called me to this. God has revealed that this is the way I am to live. God has revealed that this is His good design. God has revealed that this is His good timing. But yet, I look at God and I defy Him. Why? Because that's not the timing I think is best. That's not the way I think is best. That's not the way I feel about it. And I know better. So it's a declaration that I know better than God. The third thing, third reason we disobey, is that disobedience is a product of loving something or someone else more than God. It may be that I love myself more than God. It may be that I love this individual more than God or this family more than God or this, this, um, this place more than God, this job more than God, this stuff more than God. And because I love those things or those people more, then I am going to disobey because it would cause me to lose that or it would cause that to be different. It would cause me to walk away from that. So disobedience comes 
when we love something or someone more than God. And I want you to see the result of Jonah's disobedience. It really leads him to do something quite foolish. Look at what he does, what it says he does at the beginning of verse 3 and the end of verse 3. He, he flees to Tarshish. Does anybody have a hard time pronouncing Tarshish? Phonics, nightmare. He flees from what? The presence of the Lord. The end of verse 4, away from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> Disobedience leads to foolish action. The prophet of God is trying to flee from the presence of God. This is utter foolishness. But I've found that this is often the case, that when someone is caught doing something foolish, that you just look and go, what are they thinking? What's going on? You can typically trace that back to some type of sin, some type of disobedience in their life. Because sin and rebellion and disobedience leads us to do foolish things. Surely Jonah knows that he cannot escape the presence of God. Surely Jonah knows Job 34, 21, where we read the eyes, for his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all of his steps. Or Jonah had to have known the Psalm of David, Psalm 139, 7 to 8, where David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I can't get away. I can't flee from the presence of the Lord. Surely he, he heard the, the proverb of Solomon in Proverbs 15, 3, that says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You do not escape the presence of the Lord. Oh, Jonah had to know that. But Jonah's disobedience led him to do something utterly foolish. We are reminded right away in these first three verses of the importance of obeying God. And we don't obey God for salvation, but we obey God because we have been saved by Him. We do not obey God because we're trying to earn anything. We obey God because we love God. We're His people. We are to be a people who walk in obedience to God because we love Him. The, second, or the next thing that we need to see is just kind of a picture that is cast over the whole of verses 4 through 17. And it's that the sovereign God responds to Jonah's disobedience. We see three ways, really, that God responds in his sovereignty to this situation, to, to, to Jonah's actions. The, the first way we see God responding sovereignly is that he responds by controlling nature. He responds by controlling nature. In verse 4, 11, 13, and 15, we see him exerting control over the created order. It's a display of God's providence as he controls nature in response to, to Jonah's actions. In verse 4, 11, and 13, it talks about the sea growing more and more intense. Why? Because he is carrying out his good and gracious plan. In verse 15, the sea ceases to rage. Why? Because Jonah's thrown from the ship. What had to happen happened, and so the sea just calmed down. It calmed down. So we see God responding sovereignly by controlling nature first. Second, we see God responding by directing man's footsteps. By directing man's footsteps. In verse 7, in verse seven, it says that they look at the, the mariners, the sailors look at one another. And they say, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they're going to go and leave it up to just casting of the lot. Well, Proverbs 16.33 tells us something interesting. It says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. You can also cross-reverence in Mark 
Proverbs 16, 9, talking about man's heart may, may make his plans, but God directs his steps. God's providence, his sovereignty is displayed here as the sailors try all they can to keep Jonah on the boat, and they eventually have no choice but to toss him overboard. They're casting lots, and they look, and, and God has directed all of these things to carry out his supernatural plan. God is in control. He's directing man's steps in these moments. And the third thing we see as a display of God's sovereignty is that God responds by appointing Jonah's deliverance. God responds by appointing Jonah's deliverance in verse 17. What does it say? God appointed, the Lord appointed a great fish. Or it can be translated, the Lord had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God sovereignly led the sailors to the point that there was no other choice than to throw Jonah overboard to avoid their own destruction. Now, how do we know? They, they did everything they could. Even in the moment where they found out it was Jonah's fault, and Jonah said, listen, this is who I worship, and you need to know the only thing that's going to happen to calm the seas down is to throw me overboard. What, is it, what does it say in verse 13? What do they do? Nevertheless, nevertheless, knowing this, they rode hard to get back to dry land. So even at that moment, the, the sailors' desire was to save Jonah. They decided to, to row hard, and we're not going to do that. We're not going to toss him overboard. We're going to row harder. We're going to make it there, and then we'll be okay. And God said, no, you're not. That's not my plan. This is my plan. You're going to throw him overboard. And they had to. He appointed God's deliverance in that moment, though. Appointed does not mean that it's just some kind of chance. Right? You understand that. Appointed means that God purposed this to happen. It was his plan. It was not a chance that a big fish happened to swim by in that moment and go, hmm, look, food. Right? No, this is something that, was, that God had appointed. So the great fish was doing exactly what God had commanded it to do, exactly when God commanded it to do. In contrast to Jonah. Right? Jonah, God calls him to do something, and he rebels. He disobeys. He flees. The fish is doing exactly what it was appointed to do, showing God's sovereignty in this account. final thing I want you to see in these verses is in verse 9. Practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Any, any children of the 80s say that? Right? Yep. Any of you parents that live through the 80s sit around your dinner table and listen to your kids going, practice what you preach. Gag me with a spoon. Grody. Take a chill pill, right? We had all these sayings. Practice what you preach was one of my favorite. We, we said that all the time in our house. Practice what you preach, me and my sisters. Well, Jonah needs, needed to have grown up in the 80s. He needed to hear that. Practice what you preach because what we see in verse 9 is we see a man who claims one thing and is living another way. He, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, I, I read this, and, and I see that. That's great, Jonah. But that's not what you're showing. That's not what you're demonstrating. You, you fear the Lord, but you're running from the Lord. You serve him. He's your Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, but you're trying to flee from his presence? Really? Really? Practice what you preach. Joseph, Jonah's claims do not 
show forth in his actions. But I wonder if it might be the same for us. Do our claims measure up to our actions? Do we claim to trust the sovereign God yet live as though life is a series of lucky breaks or bad karma? Do we claim to fear the Lord yet we live with no regard to His call on our lives? Do we claim to be followers of a holy God yet we live with no desire to pursue holiness as He has commanded us? Do we claim to believe God as our refuge in times of of sorrow and difficulty, yet we look to all sorts of other means to find relief and numbness from the storm? Do, Do we claim to believe that those who are lost and under the real and present danger of God's holy wrath, yet we show no concern to share the gospel with them? Do we claim that Jesus' blood covers all of our sin, yet we live carrying guilt of of sins and we try to hide from him? We try to tuck him away as though his blood doesn't cover, as though he hasn't said that if you confess your sins to me, I am faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We claim to believe that, yet we try to hide sin from him. Do we claim that we love God above all other people and things, yet we only worship Him or we only serve Him when it fits into our schedule? If it's too inconvenient, I'm not doing it. What does our lives show about what we claim to believe? Jonah, in these first 17 verses, I believe has a lot to say to us about our call to obey the Lord. Unfortunately, it has a lot to say to, I think, every one of us about disobedience in our lives. I think it probably has some things to say to us about the inconsistency in our lives. What we say or claim we believe in areas that perhaps it doesn't match up. But thanks be to God that chapter 1 has three beautiful pictures of God's unexpected mercy. God's unexpected mercy. The reason that I wanted to, to go through those passages in the beginning about obedience is because I want us to have that in the back of our mind when we consider Jonah's disobedience, we think about our disobedience, because the reality is that we need God's mercy. We need God's mercy. Nineveh, just think about Nineveh. Nineveh was a a pagan city consumed by evil. Its evil had arisen to the Lord. Think about the sailors. The sailors worshiped false gods. In in the situation where they do, it says that every one of them cried out to his little G God. They all worshiped different gods. They were polytheists. And then we, we come to Jonah, and Jonah is the same. Jonah, what does he do? He disobeys the very God that he was supposed to speak for. All characters, everyone involved in chapter 1 deserves God's punishment. Every one of them. Every one of us. We deserve God's punishment. That's what we deserve. It's who we are. We're rebels, we're transgressors, we're sinners. And we deserve the punishment of God. But what we see God do is we see Him display time after time after time in Jonah 1 and then in our own lives His mercy. Think about this. Number one, that God unexpectedly displays His mercy to Nineveh. He exposes, I mean, he displays his mercy to Nineveh. Nineveh, as we said, they are absolutely opposed to God. It was a pagan city that worshipped false gods. It was consumed by evil, and it viciously opposed 
Israel, God's chosen people. It was an opponent of God's people. God had made no covenant with Nineveh. He owed them nothing. They had not obeyed him, but God displayed his mercy in sending Jonah to call out against them, to call them to repentance, that they might turn from their wickedness. It reminds me of Romans 5, 8, where we read that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were Ninevites, we were rebels, we were transgressors, and God sends Christ to die for us. It reminds us of John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It doesn't say that God so loved his people that were perfectly obeying him that he gave his only son. No, he loved the world. He loved those who were adamantly opposed to him and sent Christ. We need to recognize the mercy of God in withholding his wrath and sending Christ to save us. You need to know this morning that if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, that you stand under the certain condemnation, the certain wrath, the certain punishment of a holy God. The holy God that we sang of. Holy, holy, holy. He, he, he does not dwell in the presence of sin. He is holy good. He is holy loving. He is holy righteous. He is absolutely pure. He is holy just. And you need to know that outside of Christ, you absolutely deserve punishment. You deserve death. You deserve hell. You deserve his wrath. As do I. But God sent his own son only a holy god would do that only a holy god could have such a perfect love that he would send his own son his own son to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death in our place a sacrificial death in our place and only a holy god holy in power holy in sovereignty has the power to defeat death because christ rose again and he has promised that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if we confess our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. You need to understand that you need the mercy of God. You need the mercy of God. And the only way that that mercy is known is through turning from your sins and believing in Christ. Believing in Christ. The second way we see God's mercy in chapter 1 is his mercy is shown unexpectedly to the sailors or the mariners in verses 14 to 16. These are polytheistic sailors who cry out to their gods. In verse 5, they're all crying out to their little G gods, but in verse 14, who do they cry out to? The Lord. All caps. Yahweh. The great I am. The Lord. They cry out to him. And when they do this, they, they cry out to him when they throw Jonah overboard in verse 15. They have no reason to expect that God's going to save them. They, they picked him up and hurled him over. And right before that, in verse 14, they, they prayed, Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. We're going to kill him. They don't know that God had appointed a fish. They're going, we're about to kill this guy. And, and he is the one that you're angry with. And you're controlling everything around. And here we go. We're going to kill him. We're going to hurl him over God. We, please, please let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. There's God's sovereignty again. He does as he pleases. And God shows mercy. God shows mercy. The sea ceased from its raging. <laughs> what do they do? What's their response? Go about their business? Throw out a fishing net? Relax on the boat? 
No, their response, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They responded in worship. That is the proper response to God's mercy, is that we worship Him, we exalt Him, we praise His great name because He is a great and awesome and holy and mighty God, and we worship Him for His mercy that He's shown us. We had once been a people who had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy through Christ our Lord. The third way we see God demonstrate his unexpected mercy is in verse 17. He demonstrates unexpected mercy to Jonah. To Jonah. There's perhaps no more unexpected display of mercy than this. Because he delivers Jonah, not not destroys Jonah. He delivers Jonah by appointing a great fish. We, we would think in that moment that it is a time of destru- destruction. We would be thinking in that moment that he would have the same thoughts and feelings that Michael Packard that all of a sudden he realizes he's in a, in a well, and in that moment he realizes, I'm done. I'm, I'm, this is how I'm going to die. But in that moment, this was God's deliverance of Jonah. What did Jonah deserve? Jonah deserved death. Jonah deserved punishment. But yet God appointed a fish. If we had come to verse 17, just think about it. You've never read Jonah. You've never read it. You come and you're reading Jonah. If you come to verse 17 and it says, and Jonah drowned in the deep, then we would close our Bibles, we would move on and go, that's exactly right. He got what he deserved. He disobeyed the clear command of God. He rebelled against God. and He deserved punishment and death. He's dead. God spared the sailors. Jonah got what he deserved. But we don't read that, do we? We read of God's mercy. We come to the end, and just as the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea, verse 17 hurls us headlong into a story of God's unexpected mercy. Who would have imagined that God would spare Jonah? If you were reading it for the first time, you wouldn't imagine that. Who would have imagined that he would use a great fish to do it? Who would have imagined in turn that God would spare me? Who would imagine that God would spare you? Are you pure? Are you holy? Am I? No. Who would imagine? And who would imagine that he would use a cross so great as the cross of Christ to do it? Who would imagine? Colossians 2, 13 and 14 should absolutely astound us. Paul writes, You who were dead in your trespasses and circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By doing what? How do you do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the grace and the mercy of a great and a holy God. We worship him for his mercy. I absolutely love the, or the, the uh, verse in, in the song Living Hope that we sing. Where we sing, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin, to bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Oh, who could imagine so great a mercy? Such boundless grace. <laughs> we, we turn to Jonah and we see unexpected mercy. And I hope when you walk 
into your house and you get up in the morning, when I stand in front of the mirror and I'm brushing my teeth, I hope I see unexpected mercy. As one who stands deserving death, punishment, and the wrath of a holy God. <laughs> but as one who's received mercy from a loving, compassionate, holy God. The worship team's going to come up. We're going to sing a beautiful song to respond and ponder upon God's word from Jonah. And this time, if there's something you would like, there's a way you'd like to respond, I'd encourage you to do so there where you're at. If you want to pray, if you want to come and speak with me or another pastor about following Christ or just need prayer, I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to prepare for the taking of the Lord's Supper. As after this song, we will observe the Lord's Supper, and during the song, our deacons are going to come down and they're going to make preparations. And some of you are visiting today, and I want you to know this is the Lord's table. This is not Grace Baptist table. This is the Lord's table. And so we invite you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've trusted Christ, repentance and faith, and we invite you to take of the Lord's Supper. Parents, we trust you to watch over your children and instruct them as appropriate. Let's pray, and we'll stand and sing. God, we stand rejoicing in your great mercy. God, we ask that you forgive us of pride. God, I think sometimes, God, I know for me, I guess I should just speak for myself, God, there's times where I just slip into thinking that I deserve it. God, I know I don't. But God, thank you for your mercy. Guard us from thinking we deserve your mercy. God, remind us that it is unexpected. God, we look to you. We worship you. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.